Despite a lot of high-profile news stories lately involving people suffering from mental health crises in a public place, there's still not much discussion about what you should do if you are in a situation when someone is clearly in crisis and things are escalating. But we need to talk about this because clearly it can be a matter of life or death. Today, we're talking about what to do in a mental health crisis, specifically when it's not your own, but it's one you're bearing witness to, whether it's somebody that you know and you're in their home, or it's a stranger on a subway, we're going to get specific about how to act to maximize safety and care for everyone involved. We're focusing on how to make a difference in these upsetting situations on today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about whether someone has already delivered a commencement speech written by ChatGPT. Okay, let's get to it. I am glad you are here today. I've got some birdsong outside my window. And even though that usually drives me a little bananas because I worry about it being a distraction, I just read some good research about the mental health properties of birdsong for humans and how calming it could be. Maybe we'll cover that in a future episode. But for now, if my little birdie friends intrude, please forgive us. And maybe it connects us with nature a little bit. Okay, so I wanted to talk about something that I haven't seen addressed that much, although I've tried to address it in other forums. In the aftermath of Jordan Neely's death on the New York subway system, I was called upon for some interviews to talk about the overall idea of the mental health crisis that we have in the United States and how it can play into people's behavior in the public sphere. What I haven't gotten to talk enough about, and that's because there's things like actual television commercials on regular television, breaks that need to happen, breaking news that needs to occur, and kick that random lady off of the screen. But what I want to talk about in my own space today, without such limits, is what you should do if you are bearing witness to a person in a mental health crisis. Now, a lot of this comes from my training and clinical experience over the years, but I also wanted to give a shout out to the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, NAMI. Their website is nami.org, and they have some pretty good resources there, including some of the tools and tips that I'm going to utilize today to talk about this. Okay, so in these situations, we could be talking about you on the phone to a friend in the middle of the night and you're worried about them. We could be talking about you passing somebody on the street who's getting aggressive. We're going to try to paint with a brush that's not too broad. Maybe we can discuss some of these specific scenarios in the future. But for now, I wanted to address some overall principles that will apply across situations. And the first is that you really have to be able to assess whether or not the person is truly in danger or just acting erratically. Now, of course, you can't know that with 100% certainty. But you've got to be able to figure out the immediacy of the situation. Are they a threat to property? Are they a threat to themselves? Are they a threat to others? 
a lot of times someone's behavior can be unusual, it can be frightening, but that's different than it being aggressive. It is important when we talk about all of this to recognize that there are a lot of myths about mental illness and that we tend to assume that violence and mental illness are more conflated than they actually are. A lot of times people struggling from psychological disorders are more likely to be victimized than they are to actually be a danger to others. So it's important when you're bearing witness to a situation that is uncertain to pause and be as objective as possible. Is there immediate danger? Do you need emergency assistance? Who would be the best support right now? Now, it's very easy for me to say that if the answer is yes, and there does seem to be immediate danger, to call the police. But we also have to be realistic that sometimes something can be set in motion by calling the police that brings its own risks. This shouldn't be controversial for me to say, but it probably is. But especially if the person making a disturbance is somebody who is male, somebody who's a person of color, who maybe is large and imposing and particularly loud, we know enough about implicit bias to understand that that person is going to be deemed more of a threat just on a visceral level through bias, even by police. So we don't want to take that decision lightly to call the police. If you do call the police because there is immediate concern, emphasize right away that there is a mental health component. Ask if you can for them to send somebody trained in mental health. The NAMI says you should ask specifically for somebody like a crisis intervention training officer, CITs they're called. They are specially trained more so than the general police force to be able to engage and interact with people who are escalating things because of psychological disorders. They will have a more specialized response there. They might not be immediately available, but if you can get on the record right away as saying that this is a mental health crisis, it is more likely that people can be kept safe. Similarly, mention whether or not they have a weapon. If you know that there is not one or that there is one, it's crucial to share that information. Now I want to talk about your interaction with this person. Now, this might be because they're not an immediate danger to anyone, and so you're not going to end up calling for assistance. This could also be that you've called for assistance and you're still waiting. It's very important that we practice this because in the moment when we're getting upset or perhaps fearful or uncertain, we might have more threatening body language, more threatening tone of voice. So do whatever you can to keep your body language non-threatening. A person in the throes of a mental health episode, whatever it might be, might already be very frightened, might already be very confused. So if you come charging up to them, speaking in a very loud voice, that might just escalate the situation. Try not to overreact. I know that's really hard. It's as bad almost as me saying calm down, which we've established almost never works for anyone and should pretty much be avoided. But for your own sake, try at least to be mindful of your physical reaction. Try not to make continuous, intense eye contact. Now, normally, eye contact is thought of as something to bring connection. It can be warm. It can show compassion and engagement and empathy in the moment. But if somebody's in a mental health crisis in that moment, and this is an emergency, they may already be hypersensitive to threat. 
And if you're staring them down or it feels like it, they might feel more threatened by that. So you want to be bringing down the stimulation. You want to be watching your voice, watching your movements, no sudden movements. You don't want to make the person feel even more threatened. Okay, so that means not moving quickly, not making yourself too large. Instead of just trying to take control, you can offer the person some options. Can I help you sit down? Can I get you a glass of water? Don't make them feel trapped. Don't make them feel cornered. You likely should not touch the person unless you've asked permission first for the same reasons that if somebody is really feeling like they're in crisis, they're feeling threatened, they don't want you to be further threatening. Ask the person how you can help. They might have ideas that there's somebody that you can call for them, that there's a safe person that they trust, or that perhaps there's a social worker they have a relationship with. If this is somebody that you know, you, of course, have more leeway here. Now, what if you see somebody else escalating the situation? Because I feel like in light of the Jordan Neely tragedy, what we need to address is being a bystander in a situation where somebody else is already intervening. When they're intervening in a way that in and of itself is dangerous and perhaps escalating the situation, your own body language becomes even more important, not only to keep your calm, because if you can actually have more relaxed body language, it's going to help your nervous system stay calmer. But also now you have two different people that might be further escalated by you seeming threatening. So you've got to create that moment of pause. And I know I talk about the moment of pause so much and you're like, of course, you're going to get it in here now. But if you are not in a situation yourself in that moment where you can speak clearly and relatively calmly, you might just be throwing fuel to the fire. So again, calm body language, even if you're feeling anything but calm inside. If you feel like something is happening that is wrong, speak out directly. You can say, a chokehold can kill someone. Let's pause here. I want everyone to be safe. Provide a possible alternative action. Can you please lessen your grip on him? When you model calm, you can create calm. The more that an interaction becomes conflicted and aggressive, the more agitated everyone else gets as well. It's one thing to have somebody suffering from mental illness yelling and acting erratically. It becomes even more escalated when there is a physical confrontation. Of course, when we're in the throes of this emergency type of situation, we don't always think clearly, which is why it's important for us to talk about this stuff in advance, to think it through. What would I say? What would I do? Role play with friends and family. Now, if you have the opportunity to actually have more of a conversation with somebody, if they're somewhat coherent, if it's a loved one that you know will listen to you at least somewhat and engage with you, it's really important to form an alliance to get them to understand that you want to help, that you want them safe, that you are on their side. What do you need right now in this moment? You can ask, how can I be there for you? Can I call someone? If you're around other bystanders who seem to be doing nothing, know that this is a very, very common situation. Of course, famously with the Kitty Genovese case and also in various horror stories since we understand that people don't always act in the way that they should. 
Of course, there might be more to the Kitty Genovese explanations than was originally thought to be the case. We know, though, that it is much more likely that somebody won't act if they see people around them not act. We know that the bystander effect is not nothing. So you can make a difference. One of the first things that you learn if you ever do some sort of CPR training or first aid training is that instead of just screaming, call 911, you should point to someone specific that's a bystander and say, you, call 911 because that helps break through the bystander effect. If it's just generally shouted, call 911, we all might assume that somebody else is doing it. Whereas if somebody points to us and says, call 911, we've now been given something specific to do that we know relies on us, and so we're more likely to act. And again, 911 is not necessarily the only answer. If there's no immediate physical danger, it could be that even dialing the suicide prevention helpline at 988 might be better just to get you more connected to a mental health-related resource right away, even if what you're calling about isn't exactly suicide-related. I think the folks at the hotline would be okay with me saying that if it's a mental health crisis, they can be a good resource too. And of course, we have to keep ourselves physically safe. I don't want to ignore that. And that's another thing that you learn in first aid types of training, that if you become part of the emergency and you become injured yourself, then that's just more people that the paramedics or the rescuers have to help. Okay, so some of this is just the tip of the iceberg. And of course, there are all different scenarios, but hopefully you have some principles here that can be helpful. Remember the pause. Remember the body language. Remember acting specifically and mindfully in asking for help. Remember trying to create an alliance with the person. Observing things objectively. So if you need to report what's happening to law enforcement, you can do so. Asking for it to be mental health specialists right off the bat. Modeling positive, calm, non-threatening behavior rather than apathy or aggression. Unfortunately, with rising rates of mental illness in the United States and worldwide, you are going to encounter people at some point who are truly in crisis. But by talking about it and thinking it through and practicing actions before you're actually in that heart palpitating scenario, we can make it more likely that you'll act in such a way that we're moving towards a solution rather than creating a bigger problem. So give it some thought if you can. You might just save a life. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Merity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time. Take good care.